Це війна не двох армій, це війна двох світоглядів. Варварів, які обстрілюють музей Сковороди і вірять, що їхніми ракетами можна знищити нашу філософію. Владимир Путін's Victory Day speech may not have been the speech of a victor, but Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's address sure sounded like one, and with good reason. Russia's Plan A, a blitzkrieg to take Kyiv and decapitate the Ukrainian government, failed spectacularly. And its Plan B, a more methodical campaign to seize eastern and southern Ukraine, is sputtering and faltering. And to add insult to injury, Ukrainian forces have forced Russian troops to retreat from the country's second largest city, Kharkiv. Suddenly, there's talk of Ukraine not just surviving, but winning this war outright. Is this premature? And what does the situation on the ground pretend? Well, today's guest knows a thing or two about military strategy, tactics, and logistics. So stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Stockholm is retired U.S. Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, a 37-year veteran of the United States Armed Forces and the former commander of U.S. Army Europe. Welcome back to the Vertical Band. It's been way too long. Hey, man, I am so happy that you are persistent and that you're giving me this opportunity. Oh, always, oh, you're always welcome on the Vertical. So, so Ben, Putin's big speech on Victory Day turned out to be something of a nothing burger. There was no, no formal declaration of war, no mass mobilization, no declaration of victory. There were only tired old lies and absurd talking points about Nazis in Ukraine and defending the motherland from NATO. Instead, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky stole the Victory Day show saying, and I'm quoting here, soon there will be two Victory Days in Ukraine and someone will not even have one left. We won then and we will win now. Ben, are we getting ahead of our skis here? Because this is a concern I have. The, 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 when, you, when you look at the facts on the ground, it does look encouraging. Ukraine is doing very well. They're overperforming. Russia's underperforming. Uh, can, can Ukraine really win this war outright, or are we getting ahead of our skis? And what does the situation on the ground tell you? Okay, so for sure, absolutely, I 100% believe Ukraine is going to win. Um, I, I'm reluctant to predict the timeline, but I will say that probably by the end of this summer, i.e. in September, uh, Ukraine will have pushed Russian forces all the way back to the 23 February line. Um, and then it's going to be uh, a much longer effort to get them out of Crimea and the rest of Donbass. But nonetheless, I'm uh, we've got a lot of tough weeks ahead of us. Um, but assuming that we do continue the effort um, to deliver uh, the things that the Ukrainians need, we we don't need any more lists. We know what we know what they need, and it's happening. Uh, so that's why I feel confident. War is a test of will, but it's also a test of logistics. And the Ukrainian logistical situation is going to improve every day as the Russian situation gets worse. But you know, you you made a that was a great lead-in, uh, Brian, about. You know, what happened back on Monday, uh, I sat there and watched it and like millions of other people were wondering, what's he going to say? What's he going to do? Is there going to be anything? And it really was a nothing burger. And but in addition to all the other things that didn't happen that you highlighted, where was Gerasimov? Good uh, question. Where was, where was Lavrov? Neither of those guys were featured at all. So that fuels speculation that Gerasimov actually was wounded um, mm. or he's being edged off the stage uh, as somebody's got to pay the price for the for the uh, Russian forces being so poorly prepared. Um, and Shoigu is, is not going to be the one to pay the price, evidently. Lavrov, um, and, and you know this better than me, but as, as a, uh, a novice observer... Um, is increasingly been seen as not in the inner circle. And this, then the ridiculous comments he made about uh, Israel. Yeah. Israel and Zelensky and uh, Semitism and 
all of that. Yeah, no, it's certainly, I mean, one commentator said this was a victory speech of a loser, uh, which I thought pretty much summed it, summed it up. That's, it shows that. That's a great way. That is a great way to <laughs> I forget who said that. I wish I did, but it was, it was, it was the best commentary I saw. On, I wish it was me. Speech. I wish I <laughs> Well, Ben, what do you, I mean, from a military perspective, what do you attribute the underperformance of the Russians and the overperformance of the Ukrainians? What actually happened here? What have we just witnessed? Because okay, I, I, I'll let you have, I have my thoughts on it, but your, your thoughts are worth a lot more than well, mine. Well, set aside the fact that Ukrainians have fought like people who are defending their country, right? That they're so much better than many may have expected I was not surprised by how well they fought. I have been impressed with how well the population has responded in President Zelensky. So that's so let's let's uh, give full credit to all that Ukraine has done and supporters of Ukraine have have done to uh, impact Russia's ability to fight. Okay, so now park that. Why has Russia done so poorly? And and put me on the list of people who uh, supposed experts who completely overestimated their capability. I, w- I was wrong on several things that I'm willing to uh, uh, acknowledge here. Um, first, of the three things, it's uh, uh, incredible depth of corruption in the Ministry of Defense, lack of real operational experience, and then the absence of robust training exercises where you train to the point of failure. So corruption, it's it's clear that people have been making tons of money um, off of uh, Putin's huge investment in modernization. Uh, they've got new equipment, new airplanes, uh, new vehicles. There's no doubt their money has gone into stuff. But then when you have soldiers who are sent on an invasion that with rations that have expired, tires that are rotten, communications equipment that doesn't work. Um, the numbers, they, they, had, they were demonstrating manpower shortages before the end of the second week, mm-hmm. asking for Syrian volunteers. I'm like, wait a minute, I thought they had 900,000 troops. They probably have less than half of that. This is a classic technique to get money, is to say you have to pay 1,000 people when you actually only have 500. So um, the, the corruption and the lack of quality control, all, all of that, that's, that mm-hmm. was on display. The things that I missed were um, the lack of operational experience, because I had thought, all right, these guys were in Georgia, they were in Syria, they were in Crimea, they were in Africa, all these places. And then you start looking closer, and then you realize it actually it was only about 5% of the military was involved in any of that. of the military has zero operational experience. It was always the same guys, the the VDV, the Spetsnaz and Wagner that were doing stuff. And so you've got, you don't have uh, units, formations that have done joint operations in a real live operational environment. And then their exercise program. Uh, unlike the West, where uh, when you go to the Hohenfels to the training area or the U.S. Army's National Training Center, where you get crushed by the Op 4 time and again uh, in exercises where you train to the point of failure, uh, these Russian exercises that because they didn't live up to obligations, we never were able to truly observe, they're really big, gigantic demonstrations. There's no force on force or whatever. So as a result of all these things, you end up with a 40-mile convoy that's jammed up on a a single road. Yeah, no, I mean, the Russians have never been known for good logistics. I mean, even, even, I'm not a military expert, but even I know that. Um, Their nodes are not very tight. Uh, That, that, that is well known. But when I, when I watched the initial, what looked like the initial war plan, this initial blitzkrieg, when they came in on all those vectors coming south toward Kiev from Belarus, coming from, from north from, from Crimea, from the east and the southeast, I, I was wondering if they weren't going to spread theirself, themselves a little too thin. How do you assess the initial war plan? Um, was that just, uh, just arrogance and hubris that they thought they were going to be able to pull that off? Because it looked ridiculous from my point. Yeah, I think it was total arrogance uh, and, and poor assumptions. And by the way, 
We've been guilty of that also in the past, but it was total arrogance and assumptions about, you know, Ukraine would collapse, mm -hmm. uh, the people would welcome being liberated, all this uh, sort of nonsense. But I remember uh, thinking, wait a minute, I've been to Kiev. In fact, I was in Kiev just two weeks before uh, in early February, and I thought, there's no way in hell, even if there were no Ukrainian soldiers anywhere, you couldn't get to Kiev in three days and encircle it. It is a, it is a huge city divided by a, one of, uh, a major European river that mm -hmm. in that particular place, it's, it's one of the widest, broadest rivers in Europe. And I thought, how it would take tens of thousands of soldiers just to encircle Kiev by itself, even if there was no resistance. And so the uh, what we in the Army called troop to task, there was no way they had enough people to do that. And then assuming that the Ukrainians would fight, um, we know that it takes a lot of troops to enter and clear buildings, villages, towns, and cities, a lot. And it consumes battalions. And so, I mean, it was it was obvious very early that they were not going to have enough people to do this. And then I started looking for historical examples. And in 1943, when the uh, Red Army had launched its counteroffensive against the German Wehrmacht, and they were seeking to liberate Kiev, they had 600,000 troops, mm -hmm. the Red Army did, and it took over a month to liberate a much smaller Kiev. So whoever was doing the estimations of what was needed grossly, uh, you could even say criminally, underestimated what was going to be required. And it wasn't only Kiev where there were there were where, where it was a spectacular failure. It, it 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 was Kharkiv. It was in the south where they only managed to take Kherson. Um, it was they that Mariupol stood out a lot longer than everybody, and is still holding out to this day, barely, but still holding out. It wasn't just Kiev that they 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 were unsuccessful. Like they couldn't capture any major city outside of Kherson in the early days of the war. It's a great, uh, excellent observation, Mariupol. You still got. Reports that almost a thousand troops are still in that steel plant. Yep. I mean, Mariupol should have been the first city to fall. Yeah. You have all the advantages. You've got the Navy that can basically controls Azov Sea. You've got troops in Don and uh, up in Donbass. You've got Crimea. You've got all the advantages, and yet they couldn't get, and they still haven't fully captured Mariupol. They've only destroyed it. And so what this highlights is that they do not know how to do joint operations where you integrate air, land, and sea, and special forces. In fact, what we've seen is like three different parallel universes. The Navy's doing its thing. The Air Force is doing its thing. The Army's doing its thing. Special forces all got rolled up in the first few days at these various airfields. and. Um, there's no joint. And look, doing joint operations is not natural. It, it took the U.S. Congress to pass law to force us to be joint. Goldwater Nichols. And so uh, it's hard. You have to practice it all the time. And we have decades of operational experience. All of our exercises are joint. It's still hard. So the fact that the Russians don't do any of that, um, it's not surprising that they fail to do joint operations. I thought that the Russian Navy would own the whole thing. I thought that, man, they'd be doing amphibious operations on the coast of Azov Sea and on the Black Sea coast. And what I've discovered is that their doctrine is that they don't land their naval infantry except where land forces already kind of control the area. Uh -huh, okay. So they see amphibious operations just as a means of conveyance to deliver troops, whereas you know, our great Navy and our Marine Corps, the difference, what I expected was that the Russian Navy would be delivering naval infantry, doing amphibious operations, where they had freedom of maneuver along the Black Sea coast. They've done nothing because it's, it's not their doctrine. So what a, a wasted capability. And so now that's why I feel Odessa, other than missiles, unfortunately, flying into the city, yeah. there's no risk of the Russians getting to Odessa. 
their land forces have been stopped at Mikolaev and mm. just outside of Kherson. And the Russian Navy has zero appetite for getting anywhere close to the coast now after uh, they lost their flagship. And, and without, without an amphibious operation, there's no way they can deliver enough capability to anywhere mm. near Odessa or Transnistria. How do you lose your your flagship to a force that doesn't have a navy? Is, is a question. Another thing that that, that is was, a great question. I mean, I mean that's true. I mean, just it's think very, about that for a moment. There's no glorious movie or painting for that. No. Um, and the other thing that I mean, they they still have not achieved air superiority. Their comms are not secure. I mean, this is this is amateur hour. In a lot of ways, it's really shocking. I mean, how do you assess all that? Well, of course, their Air Force, they, they've got a lot of nice airplanes. But as we know, the Air Force, what matters most is who's in the cockpit. Mm -hmm. And um, our pilots in the U.S. and the U.K. and Germany and Poland and other countries, we, we spend a lot of money to make sure that they get enough time in the cockpit and in simulators to maintain readiness to practice flying against uh, air defense to practice missions of uh, supporting land operations uh, and also gaining air superiority. The, the Russians should have done that quickly, given the numbers. But it looks to me, in, in retrospect, uh, their, their advantage in numbers is totally wasted. Uh, most, most of what they've done, their sorties, they've launched missiles from inside Russian airspace because mm -hmm. they don't want to dare uh, go up against against Ukrainian air defense. Now, as they as they uh, expend their precision munitions and have to rely more and more on dumb bombs, they're going to have to come back inside Ukraine and get lower. And then and we're going to start seeing uh, more and more Russian aircraft go down. Mm -hmm. So this has been pretty much a Potemkin modernization of the of the of the Russian armed forces. Again, we we thought they went through this great this great modernization. It was this fearsome force, but it turns out to be nothing of the sort. I wanted to shift a little bit now to talk about the the war in the Donbass because I when this when Russia made this shift, I knowing the terrain of Ukraine, uh, having lived there for a while, I I had a bit of trepidation because I said, all right, it's one thing in northern Ukraine where there's a lot of forest, it's very hilly. Um, it's much easier for the Ukrainians to mount a guerrilla counteroffensive on that terrain. Eastern Ukraine, Eastern Ukraine's the steppe. It's flat. It's plains. I, I, the way I compared it, I, I, one of the ways I described it was it's like uh, if in northern Ukraine it's like fighting in West Virginia, in eastern Ukraine it's like fighting in Kansas. Um, and I thought that terrain was going to be beneficial to the Russians um, and, and, and not beneficial to the Ukrainians. But that has not turned out to be the case. Is my assessment of the, the relative advantage on the terrain correct? And if and, and how do you assess how the fighting in the Donbass has gone so far? No, I would I would agree with your uh, analogies. Um, I flew out to Mariupol one time in a helicopter. It was endless, the most boring flight I've ever been on in my <laughs> life, even though we were at about um, 50 feet uh, altitude because they were staying low, but it was just miles and miles and miles and miles of sunflower fields and wheat right. fields. Um, so yes, in terms of maneuver, you would think that would be ideal. Um, but the problem for the Russians is uh, they didn't uh, they didn't take enough time after this big reorientation to do the necessary reconstitution required to rebuild units. Uh, you know, re reconstitution is more than just replacing lost vehicles and replacing lost people. You have to train. You, you've got new re replacements. You've got new formations. How do you uh, rebuild fighting power, combat power, mm -hmm. um, to do a new operation? And by the way, you don't just automatically say, okay, now we get it, and now we want to be joint. And so what you've got, uh, so so what they've done is now just move everything around, and they're focusing on this 300-mile sort of line of contact, and they're just pushing along the whole line. Right. So so there's no, there's no focus, no mass to try and create a penetration somewhere. So what's missing – it doesn't feel like there's any sort of operational design, no operational art where you uh, achieve uh, superiority at a point to achieve a breakthrough 
and then um, uh, try where well, you can destroy huge parts of the of the enemy force. Um, the logistics is still the same crap logistics they had before. So you, you got to refuel and so on. Now, uh, we missed we missed the opportunity. We had a window there. If, if uh, we had pushed capability to the Ukrainians soon enough, we could have crushed the Russians as they were doing this regrouping. Mm-hmm. As they, they were so vulnerable while they were withdrawing. And if we'd have had the artillery and the drones in the hands of the Ukrainians a month ago, they could have been smashing these broken, vulnerable formations as they tried to reconstitute. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's gone. And so now we've got Russians that are uh, doing almost like the First World War, just artillery crush, firing at the trenches, pushing, pushing, pushing. And uh, this this is attrition. And so it will take, it is obviously taking a toll on the Ukrainians. They have lost some territory in the southeastern part of Ukraine. There's no but, doubt about but it. But regained it in the north and around Kharkiv. So. Yes. So here's here's what's going on. I think, uh, and you make an excellent point, The uh, the around Kharkiv, Russians are being pushed out. So you've got a Russian uh, Ukrainian advantage in the north, Russian advantage in the south right now. I believe, I believe, and I, I, obviously I could be proven wrong, that by the end of the summer, uh, Russia will have culminated. They, they just don't. I mean, there's no, there's no Siberian divisions on the other side of the Urals waiting to come forward. Right. They don't exist. They've got manpower problems. They've got logistics problems. Sanctions are limiting their ability to replace all the precision munitions they've expended. So this war is a test of will, but also a test of logistics. For the Russians, it gets worse with every single day. Mm. Which is actually counterintuitive to what a lot of us thought, because a lot of us feared that a long war of attrition favors the Russians because of manpower. But uh, is that yeah, a false well, assumption? The, the, sanctions, the sanctions have an effect. And uh, what we're discovering is the rot inside this uh, corrupt Minister of Defense that they don't have thousands of tanks that are ready to go into the fight. They've got rusty vehicles that have been sitting. I mean, you know, just imagine if you went if you went somewhere for six months and you and you left your car sitting there. You think your car is going to start when you get back? Right. No. So we spend hundreds of millions of dollars every year just to make sure that equipment we have in storage is properly maintained, climate controlled, et cetera. Uh, they're not doing that. And, and so um, what has happened is that we've, we're, it's being exposed that they don't have. Right. I asked a, a senior, a, a Finnish friend who's a retired, very senior Finnish officer a couple of weeks ago, I said, why haven't the Russians... Uh, um, mobilize. Why haven't they mobilized their reserves? And he kind of laughed. He said, because they would be exposed as having a totally rotten system. People would not show up. They don't know who's out there. They don't have accountability. This is hard. And he said, and they got no equipment to give them. Right. And uh, James Sher recently pointed out, too, that the, the military reforms that Sergikov put in place kind of moved away from this mass mobilization army. So their ability to, to mobilize is, is is even limited in, in that sense. But what you say is interesting here because it does say that a war of attrition, a long war of attrition, doesn't necessarily favor Russia. And this is the assumption that a lot of us have been have been going on. Yeah. In fact, Ukrainians outnumber the Russians. Uh, the manpower Ukraine has no manpower problems. That they started too. They started way too late to get the territorial defense forces up and running. But nonetheless, that's just going to get better with each day. And so, uh, manpower is not their problem. Um, it's having enough ammunition, ammunition. Uh, enough artillery to be able to destroy or disrupt Russian artillery and rockets. Yeah, and I'm going to want to dive into that aspect in the second half in terms of what the West is doing and still can be doing on that front. But before we get to that, I did want to ask you a question about this that it, that's been been bugging me. I mean, our mutual friend Michael Kaufman is always saying we need to learn how to right size Russia. We either think they are stronger than they are, 
and, and, and are intimidated by them, or we think that they are much weaker than they are, and we disregard them um, at our own peril. We've never been able to right-size them. And here we, as, as, as this war drags on, I'm like, here we go again. We, we, we thought this was this tremendous military. How did people like us get this so wrong? How did the Pentagon get this so wrong? It's, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's kind of mind boggling to my, to, to, because the intelligence coming out of the West was really, really good, except on one thing, the strength of the Russian armed forces. Remember how surprised we all were when the Soviet Union collapsed. So, you know, our failure to uh, appreciate the actual status of what's going on, this is, this is not new. And, and I don't I don't know how to break this. When I was a lieutenant in Germany in 1981 to 84, I used to go to Berlin, West Berlin to visit my best friend there. And uh, you go through this checkpoint Alpha at Helmstedt on the border between East and West Germany. You have to go through an American military police and the German uh, of the border police, uh, show your papers, your orders, and then you go through um, their Soviet counterpart on the other side, and you have to show your papers, your orders. You know, as an American, I could I could go back and forth on on orders, and then once you're through Checkpoint Alpha, then you got about two hours to get to Checkpoint Bravo, which is uh, on the outskirts of West Berlin, and it's in reverse now. Now it's a Soviet checkpoint. And then you go through the American and Bundesgrenzschutz checkpoint, and then you're inside West Berlin, like Vegas. Of course, everybody knows Checkpoint Charlie is on the wall between East and West Berlin, right? So I, I had done this a few times, and it was a bit tedious because, you I mean, it was intimidating also. It was always cold. There were searchlights. Or you hear big dogs barking, and Soviet troops are there. And um, you go into a little shack. On the Russian side you, or Soviet side, you show your papers. There was a big picture of Brezhnev there, the TV that was never on, and there was one chair, and I hated it. It was so dreary, and it was almost like a Bond movie. And I think the fourth time I made that trip, I told my friend, I said, I'm tired of going in there. You go into the shack, give the orders, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so I sat in the car, my little Volkswagen, and, uh, and it was freezing cold. And of course, the first sergeant had said, "Hey, lieutenant, don't be a knucklehead. Don't, you know, just sit there, keep looking straight ahead. Don't give them the finger, whatever." <laughs> and this is before iPhones, but they said, "Assume that they'll take a picture of you if you do something stupid." I said, "Come on, first sergeant, I get that." <laughs> so I'm sitting there in the car, my friends inside, and then something gets my attention, and I look over. There's a shaft of light coming out of the little shack. And I see a Soviet soldier come out without, he does not have on his big giant overcoat. He doesn't have his big fur hat on. He's, he's in short sleeves. I'm thinking, holy hell, man, these guys are really tough. It's freezing cold. And he's out there in the shirt sleeves. And he comes straight from my car. And he, he walks around my car twice. And of course, I'm doing exactly what the first sergeant said. I'm sitting in the driver's seat, looking straight ahead. I don't do anything. But I notice the guy then stops right outside my window on the driver's side. And so uh, I look up at him, and he raises his shirt, and he's wearing three belts. Soviet Army brown leather belt with a big brass buckle with a hammer and sickle on it. And then he gives me the sign of five. I immediately, immediately recognize he wants to sell me a belt for five Deutschmark. <laughs> right. And I immediately forgot everything the first sergeant said. I roll down my window with a hand crank. I pull out five Deutschmark. I give it to the guy. He takes the belt off and gives it to me. And then he leaves. And then I roll the window back up. And I think, holy hell, what did I just do? I mean, that could have been the biggest setup. Uh-huh. And then my friend comes out and he sees me. He goes, what's wrong? I said, just get in the car. And then we take off. I just paid five Deutschmark for a piece of Soviet equipment, a soldier's <laughs> equipment. And then I thought, that guy took a risk. He sold a piece of his equipment at a checkpoint. Right. 
how rotten are they that at that place a guy would feel like he could get away with selling a piece of equipment mm -hmm, mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. five Deutschmark, which was probably a month's pay for him. And those kind of indicators, I'm sorry for the long story, but these these are the kind of indicators that a satellite doesn't pick up. And I, I tell you, Brian, you know Russia better than me, but I think in five years, the Russian Federation is going to totally collapse. Uh, the military has been exposed. At some point, the Russian people are finally going to get tired of this. I, I was in Istanbul uh, along with uh, Lauren and the rest of our SEPA team uh, a few weeks ago uh, doing a Black Sea study. We got out on a boat on the Bosphorus. What do you think we see the first five minutes we're on the water? Is former President Medvedev's yacht. I mean, this thing, this thing was bigger than the Moskva, which was sunk. Right. And it was heading north, heading back to Sochi. At some point, the Russian people are going to get tired of this, and their their economy is going to be wrecked. Uh, nations, out of necessity, are moving away from Russia as a source of gas and oil, and moving away from that type of energy um, because of all this. I, I don't think I don't think the uh, Russian Federation, as we know it today is going to last more than five years. No, I mean, it, it certainly has the feel of the kind of late Brezhnev period right now. Um, when this war started, I said we're witnessing one of two things, the end of Ukraine as we know it, or the end of the Putin regime. Um, and at the time when this started, I didn't know which it was going to be. But as every passing day, every passing week, every passing month, I'm, I'm, I'm increasingly convinced that it is the latter. But I think a, a, a lot of us, uh, myself included, need, need, need to up our game in terms of right-sizing Russia, as our, as our mutual friend Michael Coffin uh, so, so artfully put it in a recent article that he co-authored in Foreign Affairs, because we always— That's a great, that's a great uh, formulation. I hadn't thought about it like that, but we do seem to— overestimate or underestimate all the time. Your confidence in, in where this war is going is well taken, but I I still have this trepidation that they, they have another trick up their sleeve, but it doesn't it just doesn't appear like they do. Um, the retreat from Kharkiv really put an exc exclamation point on that. Um, this is a good this is a good uh, place to kind of shift gears. I want to kind of shift into Western policy uh, in the second half. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and take a closer look at the military assistance the United States and the Allies are giving to Ukraine, whether it's enough and what more can be done. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasian Center. And joining me from Stockholm, Sweden, is retired U.S. Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, a 37-year veteran of the United States Armed Forces and the former commander of U.S. Army Europe. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast Podcasts on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Обстрілюють музейську вороди і вірять, що їхніми ракетами можна знищити нашу філософію. So this week, U.S. President Joe Biden signed the Ukraine Lend-Lease Act into law. That World War II-era act gives the president the ability to expedite shipments of uh, weapons and other military assistance to Ukraine. The United States has already given Ukraine tens of billions of dollars in military assistance. In fact, the, with, the, with the latest tranche, it can be up over $50 billion, which is more than the defense budgets of most countries. But this week, in an interview with Politico, Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kubela said the delay in sending advanced weapons early in the war was costly, although he added that the mistake has since been corrected. Ben, how do you assess the way the United States and the Allies have been prosecuting this war in terms of defense assistance, training, intelligence uh, sharing, and sanctions, and what more can we do? Because in many ways, we're, we're creating a new template for future conflicts that the United States is invested in but does not want to send troops directly into. How, how are we doing so far in your estimation? I have to say that we started late. 
it was only about eight weeks ago that we were arguing about whether or not to give Stinger. <laughs> I mean, that, that seems ridiculous now. But, you know, the administration and others were trying to gauge, you know, what would the Russian response be? And, and we, we deterred ourselves for way too long. But fortunately, we got it right now. Now we're pushing all kinds of things in there. And the only hindrance is the uh, distribution network inside of Ukraine, which is uh, uh, probably overwhelmed by right. stuff that's that's uh, beginning to arrive. So hopefully that part will get fixed. I thought it was so important that Secretary Austin talked about helping Ukraine win. 20 years, I never heard the W word win in Iraq or Afghanistan. Never. That was never a formulation or a specified outcome. So it is so powerful when somebody says, we're going to win. It's like, okay, that means we're, that means we're going to do everything we can to make sure they win. And it won't require American troops in Afghanistan. I personally wish we had some logisticians in there to help with distribution. But nonetheless, um, even President Zelensky says, I don't need troops. I just need the tools. So uh, that, was, that was an important step. As as was the the, the statement by Secretary Austin that <clears throat> we we need to weaken Russia so that it cannot go after its neighbors anymore the way it does. I'm 100% for that. I don't know that we should make that as a statement of policy because that will make it difficult for some of our European allies to uh, really embrace that, and we got to make sure we protect the unity of the alliance. Now. The, the type of stuff that's being provided is the right sort of capability. The long-range fires, whether it's drones or artillery or whatever, uh, that's that's the key is getting that and enough ammunition. And we know that the first imperative of logistics is anticipation. The ammunition consumption rate right now is, is like nothing we've seen in 50 years. And, and so we've got to be anticipating getting more ammunition to them. Uh, that that's I think that's the thing that most Ukrainians would say is the biggest shortfall is <clears throat> ammunition. Right. Now you 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 famously have said many times that amateurs talk about strategy and tactics, professionals talk about logistics. And I wanted to drill down a little bit into these distribution networks. You said there are there are some problems and bottlenecks. What what are those problems, and what can we do to to address that? Uh, you you mentioned well, it in passing. I wanted to drill down into it a little. So uh, think about what we're delivering: uh, ammunition, which is very heavy, and of course, it's explosives. So there's some special handling requirements. Um, this, this is not something that Amazon or DHL delivers. This is right. Okay, that or large uh, oversized vehicles, uh, other heavy stuff. And so it's got to get there either by truck convoy or by rail. And so um, the amount and type of stuff that's being delivered inside Ukraine is not the normal load of the Ukrainian rail network or convoys. So there's a uh, a stress on the distribution network that would be significant even in regular uh, circumstances. Now there's an urgency about getting it to the front. And uh, in logistics, you know, it's one thing to say we're going to got a convoy going down the Autobahn. Okay, but now at some point it's got to be broken down and get out to where the the, the artillery batteries are mm. or where the troops are. And you've got the brand new territorial defense force. They still don't have helmets and boots and body armor for everybody. So that's got to be organized somehow. I, th I think that that distribution network challenge mm. uh, is, a, is a big one. And, and this is not the scale and complexity that they've normally had to deal with before. That's that's what I'm talking about. And, but you think that the steps are being taken to close those bottlenecks and to get to. Yeah. to, to... There's no doubt about that. But frankly, um, what I would advocate now is if we can't get American logisticians on the ground inside Ukraine, I, I think we should. Mm -hmm. um, but that's a policy decision um, that can help there manage and supervise all this. If, you, if you're not willing to do that, then let's hire a contractor. 
I mean, KBR or somebody that does massive large-scale logistics, give them the job and um, let them help get the distribution uh, going. I mean, Amazon is is so successful because they've got a distribution network that gets things delivered so quickly. There's so the distribution. Um, it, it, there's no point in high-fiving about how many howitzers or ammunition, how much ammunition was committed that made it to Poland. That, that means zero. Mm. All that matters is what's in the hands of Ukrainian soldiers. That's the only metric that matters. Right. So this, uh, if you had to pick one thing that we, we, we should be throwing resources and time into, it's this. It's fixing these networks one way or the other yep. to get the stuff in quickly. A- absolutely. I think we, we've got a good handle on it in Poland. But because of the restriction on us going into Ukraine, the Ukrainians have to come back and get it. Right. Or there's some kind of commercial network. And, of course, it's what we call multimodal. I mean, there's lots of different routes and places. It's not all one place. That would be too vulnerable. That phase, that last leg is the hard part. Right. I also wanted to drill down. I, of course, I also took note of Secretary Austin's comments um, at Rammstein, and um, I, I, I was happy to hear him talk in those terms, not just about Ukraine winning, but that the long term goal was to weaken Russia. Um, I mean, I've been harping on for, for years, even before this invasion, that a lot of these things that we should be doing that we now are doing in response to this war, even if there wasn't a war in Ukraine. To, to weaken Russia's capabilities to 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 be aggressive against its neighbors, and the, the, when I was when I heard the secretary say that, I started to think it's almost like this administration is inventing a new form of kind of remote control warfare. That just that just that that, that just popped into my head, but it's like it is a different f- way of war um, in a lot of ways. Or am I wrong? Is this something we've we've always been doing? You're 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 a student of warfare. Are we inventing something new here? And I mean. The whole scope of it, from the sanctions to the the, the, the weapons deliveries, the training, the intelligence sharing, the psyops um, that we've been doing. How do you assess that? Are we inventing something new here? I think that um, what's happening now is better than we've done in the past, where we tried to either prop up a regime or fight some sort of proxy thing. I mean, that's that's not new. Or you support a government, okay? What what is new is the comprehensive nature of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the the diplomatic diplomatic effort by our Secretary of State and his team in this administration the past eight months. I've never seen us do so well, uh, at least not since 1995 in the uh, Dayton Peace Accords. Mm-hmm. So, the comprehensive diplomatic effort. And then the the use, I'm really glad you asked this question because I think there are so many things to study in years to come. The, the way we sh- shared uh, and revealed intelligence, mm-hmm. uh, I've, I've never seen it like that. This is the first time in my life where the Kremlin was on the back foot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the... Uh, and 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 you could you could have understood why some Europeans would be a little bit reluctant to just buy whatever we were saying, you know, after our experience with Iraq and weapons of mass destruction. So clearly, the administration did a good job of showing enough intelligence mm-hmm. to our allies, where it was compelling because there was not not a single president or prime minister said, oh, "We don't believe this. This is this looks to be false." Right. And so that um, was different. That that really took away a lot of flexibility and uh, options for the for the Kremlin. I thought that was important. Um, the fact that the sanctions, uh, Germany, uh, other European nations have joined in on the sanctions that Germany turned off Nord Stream two. Um, all all of these things. Uh, I have to say the credit goes to the administration for the not this is not the usual U.S. telling allies what they will do or inform them on, while we're on the way. But this was a consultative process mm-hmm. that uh, has I think is why it's been so effective. Where we made a mistake was 
or some some of the mistakes I think are. Let me just say this: I, where I would criticize was where the administration early on said there will not be any U.S. boots on the ground. That that was an unforced error. Even if you never intended to do it, why would you communicate that to the other side that you don't you don't have to worry that we're ever going to put troops on the ground there? Um, but you know, I I would defer to them on that. Uh, we were too slow on on making this decision. Ukraine's going to win. Mm. I'm glad we did, but it, it was too slow. But now that we have. You can kind of see the the Congress in a very strong bipartisan way supports this. Uh, that's critical that it is so bipartisan. And then, you know, um, it feels like the silly mistake we made about the Polish MIGs and whether or not mm. to. Okay, that's that's ancient history now. And that was just a breakdown of the interagency processes. What that looked like, it looked like the Pentagon wanted to, do, the state wanted to do this, the Pentagon didn't want to do it, and it didn't get worked out in the interagency processes. What it looks like to me. Yeah, it it was fumbled. I mean, the polls may have gotten uh, ahead of their skis a little bit. <laughs> yeah, but you know now again that's that's ancient history. Now we are where we are, and uh, I would imagine, I would hope, in the next few weeks we'll see uh, other capabilities. Uh, being provided to uh, Ukraine, we have deterred ourselves mm. over, I think, an exaggerated concern about whether or not Russia might use a nuclear weapon. Right. Now, these, I, 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 these escalation fears. I, I mean, they're legitimate fears, right? Nobody wants to precipitate a nuclear war, um, but sometimes we do wonder. I like the way you put it. We've deterred ourselves. Um, and Putin's playing, trying to play that card uh, relentlessly. Although as I'm watching this all play out, and I'm, I'm reading an excellent book I highly recommend, uh, Tim Weiner's uh, The Folly and the Glory, which is a book about political warfare between the Soviet Union and the United States. And it takes you back to the early days of the Cold War, when in the early days, the Soviets were cleaning our clocks with, 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 with these operations, much like they had been prior to now, until the U.S. got its act together. As I'm reading this, uh, it, you know, many, many, many mistakes were made on on our side in the early days of the Cold War as well. But it's I'm I'm reading this book saying uh, we are witnessing something similar right now, a new template for this kind of a conflict, for a lack of a better term, a new Cold War is being put in place. And I'm wondering if this template can be replicated, uh, not just with Russia but with China as well. Um, it seems the administration is building something big and important here. Well. Um... You can be sure that the Chinese and the North Koreans and the Iranians are watching to see how do we respond to Russian nuclear threats. And if uh, if we uh, freeze or if we become uh, uh, reluctant to act just because Russia says, you know, we may have to resort to extreme means, North Korea will say, well, this is good to know. Mm -hmm. We just have to threaten we might use a nuke. And we can do whatever we want with South Korea or Japan or whatever, and China and so on. So um, I think that the administration, I would imagine, they are communicating to the Russians through some channel that, hey, look, do not make a terrible mistake. If you use a nuclear weapon, we will have to respond, and it will be devastating for you. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a nuclear response. In fact, most of the most of the options will not be nuclear responses. Um, I, I would I would uh, love to see, for example, uh, five days of F-35s just destroying Russian land forces inside Ukraine or make the Black Sea Fleet go away at fairly low risk to us. Now, uh, I do take the Russian threat seriously, but I just think it is so unlikely because there are no battlefield advantages for them and it would it would mean the um, the West getting involved more directly, mm. and there's no there's no positive outcome for Russia in this. And I and I think also um, that there are people around Putin who who are considering that there will be life after him. Mm -hmm. So I, this is why I think it's unlikely. Do Do you think that in the event that Russia did use a tactical or battlefield nuclear weapon in Ukraine, that that would draw us into the conflict? Absolutely. Yeah, you yeah. don't seem to have any doubt about that. No, I mean, I mean we could. I mean, we draw could us in, in a kinetic way. I mean, 
I mean, that the U.S. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Uh, the the responses would not necessarily be nuclear. It would be a kinetic, using you know five days of air airstrikes. Mm. Uh, but there are other things they could do as well. But if we don't respond to that, that's what I'm trying to say. That the North right. Koreans and the Chinese and the Iranians would walk away saying, "Okay, well that you know that made their job easier." Right now, the administration is certainly trying to thread a, a very difficult needle here, and I think they're threading it quite well, actually. Um, we're bumping up against the end here, Ben. Anything I didn't ask you? Anything you want to say before we wrap it up for the week and I let you go to bed? Well, I I think uh, I'm in Sweden right now, and uh, you know, you think about Sweden and Finland. Uh, Finland has made a very strong announcement today that they intend to apply for membership. I anticipate, touch wood, that Sweden will do the same within the next five or six days. Mm -hmm. um, what do we get? You get two strong democratic countries, liberal democratic countries. You get two countries with very strong, resilient society. You get two countries that have quality, capable, professional military, as well as major reserve mobilization capabilities. The Finns are the best in the world at this. Yeah. Um, I cannot wait to see Finnish and Swedish officers working at various NATO headquarters, you know, filling out their share of positions uh, and the geometry uh, just change completely for the Baltic region and for the Arctic. Yeah. Um, so add this to the list of colossal strategic blunders by President Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. Yeah, no, I think he's he's getting exactly what he didn't want, and I do plan to devote an entire program uh, in the future to Swedish and Finnish accession into into NATO. I'm getting a lot of a lot of requests for that on social media, and I, I intend to follow through if if those who have been making the requests are listening. And on that note, we will wrap it up. We're pushing up against the end. That's unfortunately all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Stockholm, Sweden, has been retired U.S. Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, a 37-year veteran of the United States Armed Forces and the former commander of U.S. Army Europe. Thank you, Ben, for an enlightening discussion, as always. What a, what a privilege. And Brian, I, I love your show. And I'm really happy you gave me the chance to be on it. Oh, uh, you're you're always you're always welcome. Um, I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Zachary Smith is ably filling in for Lance Ligas in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. Zachary also handles our all important post production duties, cleaning up my many many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. And on that note, I'd also like to thank Zachary for his service to the vertical over the past year as he is graduating and moving on to bigger and better things. Good luck, Zachary. You have left some very big shoes to fill. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. Until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.